0: This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville. Tonight we'll hear one woman's perspective on how our world could change if people stopped viewing each other as us versus them. I
1: see less bullying, children faring well in school. I
0: see a more perfect union. We'll learn about new innovative efforts underway to prepare students for challenges
2: in the field of advanced manufacturing. We don't want to wait 10 years and then say, oh, we've got to get people ready to use right, this because right. companies like Boeing and others need them today. We'll get
0: an update on Listen Local Huntsville's Music from the Moon contest.
3: This was to be a body of art that would live in perpetuity to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. just something that was just really cool and international and uniquely human.
0: And we'll hear the story of the Clotilda, the last known ship to bring slaves to the US from Africa. That's next on the Public Radio Hour. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Katie Ganaway, your host for tonight. Coming up this hour, we'll hear about a long-awaited discovery from the Alabama Historical Commission, Next Flex expands its student training efforts to North Alabama, and a human rights activist shares her ideals of a world without the us-versus-them mentality. The first host, Brett Tannehill, sits down with Alan Little and John Schmidt from Listen Local Huntsville, which is in the final stages of its $10,000 Music from the Moon songwriting contest.
4: So the contest uh, really got out there Uh, all over the world, 240 entries. Uh, Tell us what happened with that initial phase of Music from the Moon.
3: Well, I think the response was phenomenal. You know, we, we launched, uh, I mean, we, we went international with it. We got, you know, 114 different countries uh, involved. Right. And the... Uh, 44 of the 50 states also. That's right. 44 of the 50 states. Apparently, Iowa doesn't like to uh, to submit music Come content. on, Iowa. <laughs> <Right. We'll get laughs> with the program. But the response was phenomenal. And what I think was really encouraging to us was seeing the... Uh, Seeing the interaction between artists and them supporting each other and, you know, uh, just giving each other really cool feedback, you know, within, within the songs. It was actually before it was getting to the final stages of the contest, it was building itself into a really cool community space, too.
4: And before we turn the mics on, uh, you mentioned that before the contest, you, you did a survey with people asking, sort of searching their motivation for entering. Of course, there's the $10,000 uh, grand prize. There's the fame. But what did you find was the main motivation for getting into this contest? So,
3: uh, you know, Brad, as you know, working for a nonprofit, uh, it's, it's you, you spend a lot of time working really hard and now always looking up and, and reminding yourself of why it's important. And I think this was so cool to see that the number one reason why people decided to do this contest was that they wanted to contribute to a body of art that celebrated something human. And I think that was kind of the spirit of what we wanted to push was that this was to be a body of art that would live in perpetuity to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. And that's just something that was just really cool and international and uniquely human.
4: Alan, you got anything to add to that?
5: Yeah, that's really it. You know, that was something that we actually sent out uh, on a forum. We sent, we created a private group um, on social media and actually asked exactly what, what drove you to do this. And so the vast majority of the people were contributing to that body of art celebrating this. So that was, that was cool. And we had to make it a contest. That's the sad part about it. We can't just date. Yeah, we art can't just contests do are that. always kind of strange. Right.
4: It's, it's it's not a competitive yeah. thing, right?
5: You want to write a song about the moon, and so I mean, to and and it was also I was I was pleased that we were able to get that many submissions because it is an assignment writing type thing. Where something like right. uh, uh, NPR's Tiny Desk is write a song, you know, but it can be about anything, and we did have some. Some people wrote songs about anything. They don't think they really read the instructions. <laughs> people you know. are prone to do that. <laughs> song. I got a song. Those were some yeah. of the best submissions out Right, <laughs> right. Like, it was a really great song. It didn't have anything to do with the moon. But anyway, yeah.
4: So uh, the first round of judging uh, just ended. Uh, tell us what happened in the first round of judges. It was kind of a people's choice thing, right?
5: Yes. So the first round of judging was done – By likes. So this was, we did this on YouTube, On YouTube, that's correct. Um, And that was, that was pretty interesting, but that we did it that way in order for the artists to promote themselves, to Mm -hmm. make sure people were hearing them and all that kind of stuff as, you know, and um, go ahead. Yeah.
3: I mean, as, as this wasn't just about also, you know, building a body of art, but what Listen Local is about is promoting a, a person, not just a song or an event, but celebrate and to promote people. And we thought, what better way to give folks a platform and a reason to self-promote, to to you know, exercise their social media savvy and just build a larger network and reach more people than than to do it this way. And, and I think it, it really did uh, did really pan out the way we hoped.
4: So the uh, top six. Uh, chosen by likes. You also had uh, two judges picks where you sort of ran the metrics on how well people, you know, follow the rules and and fit the categories and that sort of thing. And now you're on to the next round uh, and taking these eight finalists before your panel of celebrity judges. So tell us a little bit about what happens next.
5: So the final eight are going to go in front of our celebrity panel, as you said, and that is Mac McAnally, one from, a, uh, he's a 10-time uh, American, or the Musician of the Year Award winner um, from the CMAs who plays and has played with Jimmy Buffett for years and years and written a bunch of uh, Jimmy Buffett songs. Um, so we're glad to have him. He's got some Alabama roots, so we definitely want to have an Alabama presence. So, and that comes into uh, John Paul White being a Shoals Very cool. Shoals guy. Yeah, and a wonderful and seasoned Incredible songwriter he is, so he we've got him on board, and then we've got uh, Ben Levitt of Mumford and Sons is also a great writer, and of course an incredibly international accomplished uh, musician. So, um, so, so yeah, those three.
4: So, what are the judges looking for at this point?
3: They were given a they're basically a Google Doc that has the video and and four grading criteria that they score from from uh, one to ten. And it's uh, lyrical content, right? So if just a great lyrically written song, but it's not necessarily uh, about the moon, you <laughs> still get some points there. But then the the moon message or space exploration was a second criteria. And then just general musicianship and uh, charisma. So they grade on those four criteria. And then we pump them in by the percentages we have in our official rules and out pops a statistically significant number.
4: And then what happens? The winner comes to Huntsville? Yeah. That's right. So That's we've
5: right. got a... Uh, some different things planned you know we've got listen local 13 uh, or excuse me it's 14. listen local 14 excuse me um, listen local 14 is is coming up and that's on uh, july the 13th and we've got west sheffield from Muscle shoals as well as Huntsville Zone claire carpenter um, two great songwriters and then the winner is going to be our third guest um, so that's going to be great there's two shows that day uh, one at five p.m. and one at 8, and those tickets will actually go on sale on June 22nd at 5 p.m.
3: While we're having our stage at the Tangled String Music Festival.
4: Yeah, and let me ask you about that. So uh, Listen Local Huntsville uh, involved with Tangled String Music Festival. That's coming up at Big Spring Park East on June 22nd, like you said, and you've got your own stage uh, featuring Rob Aldridge, uh, Brandon Henson, Preston Watts, and uh, everyone's favorite, Don Osborne. Absolutely. So how did you arrive at those four uh, local talents?
5: That happened very quickly. There was no competition to win those slots. Um, we got <laughs> countless, countless messages, what do I need
4: to do to get on <laughs> with yeah. the local stage? I'm like, well... Because Tangled be- Stream Music Festival, uh, it's... It right. was it was really great last year, and I'm sure Absolutely. a lot of people would want to be involved in that.
5: Absolutely, I ar- ar- arrived at that. We we're very particular about curating our shows, and we kind of took that same that same measure there. I wanted to have more of an eclectic um, gathering of musicians that would be on our stage doing their doing their sets, and so those four musicians are are quite different, and they're all quite great as well <laughs> no, no. so they all right. do really great work
4: so you mentioned uh, i was going to ask you about some other local music initiatives that listen local huntsville has coming up this summer you men- mentioned listen local 14 coming up july 13th, july 13th Correct. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about that
3: so that like alan said that'll kick off the uh the the 50th anniversary festivities that week so we'll have our winner fly in and be our uh be alan's third guest on that show uh, doing the matinee and the evening show, and then uh, Monday the uh, artist will be going out to Fame Studios and recording their song. Uh, with uh, our friends from Tonewood Amp, we're actually flying out from Phoenix, and they're going to come and um, and and document it on video and provide that. So hopefully there'll be some great content coming out of this, oh, and we're hoping to get some. Uh, they some, do great work. Oh, they do it. phenomenal. Yeah, so we're hoping to get some some uh, some press during that time too. So hopefully we have some good content just to, just to share about the about the contest in general. Um, and then we have the uh, the the gala uh, that's right at the the, Space Market Center. Mm-hmm.
5: Over in the Davidson Center. that's the big big event with all the a lot of Apollo astronauts apparently are going to be there as well as a um, bunch of other NASA dignitaries and whatnot. And we've got a little small portion of the program where our winner will get to get up and uh, sing that song and of course the uh, uh, the presentation of the uh, the uh, custom guitar that is being built for. Um, the museum to celebrate the fiftieth of the Apollo Eleven.
4: That, that's that's super exciting. Yeah. So, so one thing that now that I have both of you here that I really want to ask is, um, so listen, local does a great job of putting on events and bringing together shows that people want to go see. But I think that the element that a lot of uh, nonprofits and bands and other sort of you know event organizers are are, are missing is how to really connect what they're doing with people who want to come see it. And it seems like everything that you guys do is, you know, I'm not like bragging on your thing, but <laughs> everything you guys do is really successful and people turn out for it. So h- how do you do that? How do you, how are you so successful I, in reaching I, out like that? Can I take this? I wish
3: you would.
5: A great deal of the success has come from our partnership that we made in the beginning with this competition, our partnership with MidCity, um, who is doing great things. Um, in order to build a, a great music ecosystem here in town. They recognized our vision, you know. I think we talked a little bit about that. Um, and it coincides with theirs. And so we were, it was a beautiful matchup, uh, you know, in order for us to be able to, you know, get together and make this work. It wouldn't be possible without Mid City. is what I'm basically saying. It wouldn't have gone as far as it has um, Reaching all these different countries in the world and things like that, and for us to be able to create this this big database.
4: But uh, it, but it's not just the contest. I mean, you've done things at uh, Tangled String Studios yeah. that sold out. I mean, no, so
3: I, I think you know it, it all comes back to um, you know. So Evan Billiter, uh, Musical Education Foundation, right. and Alan and I sat around the table um, early, early on, and we we set a vision for this organization. It was to support, showcase, and promote uh, singer songwriters, and um, we had done it from day one with intention, with sincerity. And I think that as long as we continue to do that, to, to serve the artists uh, and not, you know, not an event, not a venue, but we serve the artists and help promote and support and showcase them. Um, I think that, that that comes through. And I think folks recognize, you know, <laughs> we're, we're two guys that yeah. love this community and are incredibly passionate about making sure that, you know, Huntsville and North Alabama is recognized for the music prowess that it, that it has. And I think that that just kind of comes through, and it's, uh, it's easy to sell something that, that uh, you just fundamentally believe in.
4: And another question, and this is the last question uh, that I think you're, you're both uniquely uh, suited to answer, why should people go see a band they've never heard of? Why should someone get off, off the couch and just go see some live music that they're not familiar with?
5: I think it's because through our hard work that we have developed a trust in the community that if we're going to have a show, we don't have these shows every other week or once a month or anything like that you know we have them quarterly and we we feel that we've developed a trust that if you're going to come to a listen local show you are going to get great music we're not just getting any you know joe blow off the street that has a guitar What else can you say to that, John? Because
4: I think people are hesitant to sort of experience new things sometimes. If they're not familiar with it, they might be like, eh, maybe. Some of the best music experiences I've ever had, like the first
5: time that I ever saw Wilco, I'd heard about Wilco. Somebody couldn't go, and I took their ticket, and it was on the second row, and and then I became a Wilco fan, yeah. And some of my best experiences have been that way. So we're hoping that that bleeds off. (laughs)
3: Well, so I mean, I I think generally it's because you know it's just it's great because music is a representation of life in an area or as a of a a city, and I think that's important to to just experience what that city is. And you know, when I travel, I try to try to do that. Um, But I think, like Alan said, for for us, it's we've done everything we can to to build a brand of, of trust, and you know that if if our name is associated with it, that we've done the time, the diligence to have a curated. Uh, to have a curated show that you can come out with very low risk of having uh, anything but an awesome time and, uh, and see great music.
4: Yeah, we have to have it that way if it's going to carry on. That was John Schmidt and Alan Little from Listen Local Huntsville. You can find all the finalists to the Music from the Moon contest on the YouTube page they created. Just go to YouTube and search for Music from the Moon. Let's check out some music from the finalists. Thanks for tuning in.
3: Yet he was five years old. He said, I'm gonna be an astronaut. I'm gonna
6: fly around in a spaceship up above. Have you ever dreamed a place so far? Wishing
7: on that passing star. Just a glimmer of hope. Even though
5: your back's against the road Touch of kindness. Leave this world behind. There's never a dream
6: too far away I'll make it there someday Someday
3: I'll go there To a place where no one's been
6: So unlikely and amazing Some people still think it's fake But I have had the courage I, have
3: had the faith. I remember when I was just a
1: child, looking out into the night sky. All systems go. We're finally clear for liftoff.
7: Ascending toward the open sky. It's a great big world, and there's a little girl. With a bright and beaming mind, she dreams of flying high, just like Apollo 69, and breaking through that hardened sky. It's a rocket shooting towards the sky, asteroids quickly flying by, a feet to the ground.
0: Last year in Mobile, there was an unusual and exciting discovery. The remains of a ship, thought at first to be the remnants of the last vessel to transport slaves from Africa, a ship named the Clotilda. Though those remains did not match the Clotildas, researchers kept looking, and not too far away they found it. The real thing this time Here's Carolyn Hutchison, host of Troy Public Radio's In Focus, talking about the discovery with the Alabama Historical Commission's retired Major General, Walter Givan. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3
6: Huntsville. On May 22nd, the Alabama Historical Commission announced that archaeological evidence indicates the remains of the last known vessel to bring slaves to the United States from Africa have been found in coastal Alabama. In 1860, the slave ship Clotilda illegally transported 110 people from West Africa to the Mobile area despite a 52-year U.S. ban on the importation of slaves. Reportedly, after the delivery, the captain then burned the Clotilda. Its charred remains a mystery for almost 160 years. Major General Walter Govan, U.S. Air Force retired, is Troy University's senior vice chancellor for advancement and economic development, and he is also chairman of the Alabama Historical Commission. We recorded his firsthand account of the stunning discovery of the Clotilda on May twenty second.
8: It's wonderful to be with you, Carolyn.
6: You are near Africatown with an on location report of an international discovery.
8: Yes, Carolyn, I'm I'm very privileged. Uh, in addition to my duties at Troy University, to serve as chairman of the Alabama Historical Commission. And I also just had the great privilege and honor of meeting with the leaders of Africatown and the descendants of the uh, enslaved people who came over on the Clotilda to tell them that we have found the Clotilda.
6: There has been this mystery surrounding this slave ship for years, and of course all of this dates back to 1860. Everyone wondered what happened to this last transport of slaves from West Africa to coastal United States around Mobile. What do you know about this?
8: Well, of course, we had a history that told us a little bit that the captain had scuttled the ship after delivering. You know, Again, this was completely illegal, even in the U.S. at that time, the international slave trade. and This was done against every convention there. Naturally, they wanted to get rid of the evidence, and so they scuttled and burned the ship. But we didn't know exactly where. And over the years, there's been speculation. A little over a year ago, somebody thought they'd found the Clotilde. It turned out to be a false identification. It was a different ship. But it really did focus attention again on this incredible story. And so we at the Historical Commission were able to muster a partnership with National Geographic, with Smithsonian, with Search Incorporated, the true international heavyweights in this kind of science and discovery. And through the partnership with them, it ultimately led to the discovery of the Clotilde.
6: So have you actually seen the remains of the ship?
8: I have not seen the remains of the ship. The ship is in place. But through the sensing technology and the divers, you can see the signature of it. What I can tell you is we know from history this was a certain kind of ship it would have had this kind of wood, it would have had these dimensions, it was burned, as we know from the history, so there would have been traces of that. All of these things go into creating a profile that the experts can use to match against the shipwrecks that they find and begin the process of analysis to determine whether it is indeed the ship they're looking for. And in this case, there has been a rigorous and months and months of analysis and review of the findings and We can say with confidence, this is the Clotilda.
6: Can you tell us anything about the location, or is it being shielded from public scrutiny?
8: The mission of the Alabama Historical Commission is to protect, preserve, and interpret. And you see, protect is that first thing. So securing the site was our first thought, and we have secured the site. We're working with all state agencies, Coast Guard, and everybody involved to make sure that we've got the site secured. So we're not publicizing where it is so that we can then begin the job of preserving and interpreting this. This belongs to the people of Alabama, the people of Africatown, and it is the Alabama Historical Commission's legal responsibility under federal law and state law to act as the steward of this shipwreck.
6: Speaking of the citizens of Africatown, who were the descendants of the slaves who were transported on the Clotilda, what do they think about this discovery? Have you talked with any of them today?
8: Yes, we've had a long working relationship with them. We've really developed a bond. So they needed to be the first people outside to hear this. And so we expressly, uh, members of the Historical Commission, uh, the professional staff, and I came down here to give them this word. They were jubilant. They've been waiting for this day for a long time. I was able to give that news to them and, and watch them react with jubilation for this important touchstone of their heritage. But, you know, Carolyn, this is much more than about a 19th century shipwreck. This is the story of a people and that's what you could see when you were you were looking at them is that they saw here is our story and it is going to be known and it is going to be told on an international stage.
6: No one knew what happened to the Clotilda. They knew what happened to the slaves, but not the ship that transported them from West Africa.
8: Right, you know, that's been the you know one of the great mysteries of what happened to the ship and it completes the story, but it also it revives the story. Even when we were just doing the search, It was fascinating to see how much interest in the whole story had come back up. People got focused on it again, which was a good thing. Now that we literally have found it, really this is only the beginning of an interpretation of that, preservation of that artifact and using it to interpret and tell the story of the people of Africatown and the people who came to this country as enslaved people what a treasure and a cultural resource it'll be.
6: General Gaván. when you talked with the citizens of Africatown today, what did they most want to learn about the story of the ship that transported their African ancestors?
8: I think right now what they're interested in is they realize that they've got to use this to tell the story. So they were most interested in how are we going to preserve this? And the sense of bringing it home you know, a memorial in Africa Town of some sort of, something that can bring people back and that the story can be known and can be told to the people who come there. And, you know, as I told them, I said, you know, Africatown is about to become the center of the universe for a while, and that's a good thing.
6: Are there any material remains of the ship that have been found?
8: What is there is still in place. So there are material remains in place.
6: General Gavan, what has today meant to you as chair of the Alabama Historical Commission when we're looking at an international find?
8: I was a history major in college. I love history. This this is a passion for me. I count myself lucky to serve on the Historical Commission. I count myself incredibly lucky to be serving at a moment when we've had a find of this magnitude, of this importance to the people of Alabama, the people of the world. It truly is an international cultural resource.
6: And hopefully the remains can be raised and preserved so that the public can have some sort of access to this story.
8: But this is truly a remarkable story. The shipwreck here to have descendants of the people who came on that ship, you know, you're not going to find that anywhere else. It's incredible.
6: Well, General Gavin, we thank you for an on-location report from Africatown for Troy Public Radio as chair of the Alabama Historical Commission. Thank you, sir.
8: My pleasure, Carolyn. What a great day for Alabama and for Africatown.
6: That was Troy University's Senior Vice Chancellor for Advancement and Economic Development, Major General Walter Gavan, U.S. Air Force retired, who also chairs the Alabama Historical Commission. More information about the remains of the Clotilda can be found at the website ahc.alabama.gov.
0: Thanks to Troy Public Radio for your wonderful interview there with Carolyn Hutchison, the host of In Focus, and retired Major General Walter Gavan, the Senior Vice Chancellor of Economic Development at Troy University, and the Chairman of the Alabama Historical Commission. And thanks to you for listening to the Public Radio Hour right here on 89.3 Huntsville. Next, WLRH's Sarah Williamson talks with Zulfat Zuara, the chair of the American Muslim Advisory Council, about the toxicity of the us-versus-them mentality we see so much in the world today. This past March, you gave a
7: Spark Talk at the Unrig Summit here in Nashville. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yes. The old summit was about how do we make our democracy better? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's nonpartisan. It's from all sides. How do we make sure that we get a lot of Americans involved in the political system? And when they invited me to speak, I kept thinking about the people that I know that are not participating in the system. Not because they don't want to, but mm-hmm. because they felt left out. Mm-hmm. And so I decided that I wanted to talk about this uh, rhetoric of us versus them where we actually box ourselves into corners and look at each other as different. And in so doing, we actually give people the feeling they don't belong. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, it affects our society. And in fact, it affects our political system and our democracy.
7: Just a few examples of the us versus them mentality, it's kind of like he versus she, and um, we want to do good, they have an agenda, good guys, bad guys, poor, rich, black and white, Christian, Muslim, you know, or other religions.
1: Yes, I mean, uh, psychology says as as individuals we have the tendency to look at people that are different from us differently. Right. And so that psychological uh, labeling you know could be because of anything somebody has a blonde you think okay she's blonde and she doesn't know anything and so we're in turn to do that and so how do we move away from that right Mm -hmm. Uh, how do we make sure that subconsciously we're not prejudging people Mm
6: -hmm.
1: Uh, uh, and so that's 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 the way it goes and so the labeling could be from uh, the way somebody looks the, the color of their eyes to to their faith, their belief, their gender, uh, uh, and their ideologies, their political system. And so that's kind of the way that that, that works. And uh, it's also being uh, noticed that when we do do that, we're all on the losing end of it because we don't get to know each other, and we're missing from that part of our population that we're not reaching out to.
7: How and where do we see the impact of the us versus them mentality?
1: Uh, it manifests in a lot of ways. Uh, when mm-hmm. you look at the people as different from you, then definitely you feel they don't have the same belief systems and that they don't believe in the same thing. Right. And the extreme part of that is actually believing that that group of people will actually do harm to you, mm-hmm. or that their belief system is contrary to. To what is positive that you believe in, mm-hmm. and so that's where the fear comes in. And so, in that, you now want to exclude them. Mm-hmm. In that, you want to protect yourself from them. Right. And that's how that goes. Now, how does it manifest? Uh, we've we've seen it in the way we describe. It's there in uh, when you look at black people and think all oh, black people are thugs, uh, all poor people are uneducated. Uh, all Muslims are terrorists. Uh, all white people are racist. And these right? negative stereotypes. So, so the negative yeah. stereotyping is where this usually manifests, and people use it for different reasons.
7: What is the effect of the us versus them mentality being promoted? and perpetuated in mainstream media and, and social media and all of this content that we consume every day. What is the effect of that?
1: Well, the, the effect is that it's creating more divisiveness, it's creating more us versus them. And it's actually uh, one of the reasons why you have a lot of these terrorist groups mm-hmm. and the reason why people are attacking people they've never met that they don't know. Uh, uh, and this is happening globally. Uh, you have the Pittsburgh uh, shooting in a synagogue What would make somebody going to a house of prayer, the place where people feel safe the most, to go shoot them without having met them? Same thing happened in New Zealand Mm -hmm. with the most shooting, right? And then you talk about Sri Lanka Mm -hmm. with the Christians being attacked on Easter. So you have all these terrorist groups, regardless of their faith, that are attacking people of other faith because they feel that they're different. Mm-hmm. And that's that effect of us. Whether, whether it's uh, white supremacists or ISIS or, or any other terrorist organization, that is the effects that we're seeing on the ground. Mm-hmm. They are actually uh, going around and recruiting and, 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 and creating a lot of divisiveness.
7: And they do that through like social media. They do
1: that. Through, that's how they get to, to, to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So that lonely kid on a computer somewhere, uh, uh, that kid that does not feel like they belong in school, Because they've been bullied, they have nothing else to do. Needed a place to go. And somebody's like, oh, they don't like you. Come to us. You like us. They're different from you.
7: Mm.
1: I know we're talking about it a lot. And in my experience, you know, a lot of people are good. A lot of people don't believe in that. And that's why the most people that don't believe in those uh, dangerous uh, stereotypes and perpetrating those evils need to come together and make our voice louder to talk about, no, we're not going to let this happen Keep our safe.
7: So, what would happen, or what would the future look like if we didn't have the habit of uh, operating in the us versus them mentality? What could the future look like?
1: Oh my God! <laughs> if we did not do that, there will be less discrimination. Mm-hmm. There'll be less bullying, because us versus them is what causes bullying. Mm-hmm. when you pick on somebody because you think they're different from you. Mm-hmm. And so in a world where we look at each other as human beings, in a in a world where we look at each other as uh, citizens of the United States of America, the greatest country in the world, and we all work to make that country great and bring all these differences together for that huge purpose mm-hmm. that we're all on the same team, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in that world, I see I see uh, uh, less bullying. I see children faring well in school. Mm-hmm. I see our education system prospering because uh, everybody's doing well. I see economic system booming because we're looking at different ways to cater to all our citizens. Um, I see I see a more perfect union. Mm-hmm. that's what I see as somebody who's been on the other side of being marginalized, Mm -hmm. or being looking at as a them, right? Mm -hmm. I always make a conscious effort not to stereotype. I always try not to, not that I've never done it or that I would not do it again, but I try not to. Mm -hmm. I always try to look at people as individuals and try to judge them based on my relationship with them. Because not everybody is the same. I have five kids and my five children are different, different personalities but Mm. wonderful all the same. And I think that's the way we have to look at it. If there's a fact that somebody is bad, Mm -hmm. then you treat that person as bad, but you don't have to project that towards the entire family. Mm-hmm. And that's what we need to do as people. And and I I don't see enough of that. I see we're getting better. I see in some areas more than others. I'll tell you uh, uh Nashville is a beautiful, wonderful, welcoming place. Uh Nashville has a lot of uh diversity. Mm-hmm. And Nashville is embrace diversity better than a lot of places. And so that's that's good. That's what we want. And if you look at places that embrace diversity, they're actually doing good. Mhm. And that's that's the model we need to look at. Tennessee being last in voter turnout, uh, that was why I spoke about that. What about these people that we're not engaging? What about these people that we're telling do not belong, but they're American citizens? What about their voices? How do we bring them to the table? Mm-hmm. We have to let everybody know their voice matters and that we are all Americans. We're all on the same team. Uh, one of the analogies that I gave in the, in the speech was about the uh, USA basketball team, right? Mm-hmm. You know, in a basketball team, you got the guard, you got the forward, you got the tall shot, right? They have different roles to play on the team. But the goal is we want to win as a team. If you have a basketball team where everybody is a guard, maybe they'll do okay, but if they face a team that has a center, they're in trouble. So that's why you have to have the center, you have to have the forward, you have to have the guard. That's what makes a team. But when they are in their uniform, when they step on the floor, they forget that, okay, I'm the short one, I'm the tall one, I'm the this one. They work together and bring their their strengths for the betterment of the team. And that's what we are as the United States of America. We're all different, but our common goal is our country and doing the best for our country.
0: That was human rights activist Zulfat Suara speaking with Sarah Williamson about how life would be better if society could escape the us-versus-them mentality. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, I'm your host tonight, Katie Gannaway. The advanced manufacturing sector is evolving quickly, and to make sure North Alabama schools can provide plenty of quality workers, a new program called Flex Factor is exposing local students to what they can expect in the field today. I recently spoke with Dr. Courtney Taylor, the Regional Director of Workforce and Economic Development at the Alabama Community College System, about its partnership with California-based NextFlex and how they're trying to get more students interested in
2: advanced manufacturing. I began working for the community college system back in November, and uh, Boeing had already written this grant. So part of my job became NextFlex Flex Factor program. And so I went out to California to sort of see how it all works, and um, initially, I would have to tell you that I was a little concerned because I didn't understand how we were going to take students through this program and make them suddenly interested in something that they are, in large part, not interested in today. Mm -hmm. But once I went out to California, I really saw the students interact with the program, with the people, and get excited about manufacturing. And I said, okay, we definitely have to do that in Alabama. One of the big tenets with Flex Factor is that teachers do what teachers do community colleges do what they do. And then me as the project manager, I sort of stand between them and translate. And so my job was to coordinate the parts and pieces at the high school while the teachers took care of the students mm-hmm. and then go into the industry to set up the tour date. In this case, it was with Boeing um, since they funded it. And I would go in, uh, set the dates up, go back to the teachers, make sure it all works. The program was a little more than six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to the teacher's I believe in late January, Mm -hmm. and said, oh, by the way, we need six weeks of your time. And we went to the principals, and they said, yeah, sure, we want to do this. Can you differentiate
0: (coughs) what this program offers students versus something like Calhoun's Fame
2: program or – Anything else in that similar vein? So to take just a little step back with that, Mm -hmm. this program was developed by industry essentially as a way to introduce students to those types of opportunities. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the challenges facing every industry today, especially advanced manufacturing, is people aren't going into it. Um, We have a gap, a generational gap in people in these occupations. Students don't even understand what's available to them. So Flex Factor was created by NextFlex to sort of solve this problem. And um, it's designed to simply introduce students to the occupations and to the pathways to get to those occupations. So FAME prepares students for the occupation of advanced manufacturing technician, industrial right. maintenance, things of that nature. But we can't get them into FAME programs if they are completely unaware of what the industry actually is. Mm-hmm. And um, I so this actually- this is like a step before Bingo, okay. bingo. Almost, um, I don't wanna say recruiting because that's not really what it is, but it's truly just exposing them. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing today is manufacturing looks different than it used to realistically. Mm-hmm. Even a production job, it looks very different from when it was textiles and all that stuff. And so it's trying to sort of unravel a little bit of popular culture um, and let students see for themselves what's available.
0: So I wonder what
2: companies here in North Alabama or even
0: just in Tennessee Valley, which ones are involved in this sort of process? You mean with
2: FlexFactor? Yes. So Boeing saw FlexFactor actually um, when it was out in California and Ohio Mm -hmm. and said, we want that in North Alabama. Mm -hmm. Uh, Boeing sponsored the program. Uh, They gave a $250,000 grant to get the program to Drake State Community College and Calhoun Community College. Okay. And um, they are the main industry partner for this, for the pilots. We stuck with one industry so that we could figure out all the kinks. It is surprisingly difficult to communicate and to coordinate between all of the different entities and make sure everyone's equities are still met. Mm-hmm. I have a waiting list of teachers who want to run this in and, and many school systems, even outside of the three we started with. Mm-hmm. Um, we piloted it with Madison County and Huntsville City for the full flex factor. Mm -hmm. And then we did a one-day version for Madison City. With the FAME program, we actually had uh, Scott Russo and Keith Laney. Uh, Scott is from Mazda Toyota. Keith is from Toyota. Mm -hmm. They brought um, a FAME student out and talked to the seventh and eighth graders about the FAME pathway. So the opportunities are endless, but we are challenging industries now in a way to say we've got to find a way to work with you all to bring students in. So you mentioned immersing these students
0: at a, even a younger age, middle school age even, into these companies like you said Polaris. I wonder what sort of hands-on activities they're able to do once they're in
2: there to sort of like get a, <laughs> excuse the pun, but get a feel for yeah. it, you know? Um, the full Flex Factor program, they got to go to either Drake State or Calhoun Community College and interact with the equipment that they have, okay. which is designed for that. Yeah, And so that was really fun. Because because they do that after they go to the industry. And these were the older students, but they do that after they go to the industry. And all of that is done after they've already been introduced to the flexible hybrid electronic technology. I was going to ask you about that. What, yeah. Could you explain that <laughs> yeah, a little bit more? Essentially, flexible hybrid electronics are flexible circuit boards. Right. And so they can be printed on any substrate. So you can print them on your clothes. You can print them on a vehicle, mm-hmm. on a band, you know, like anything. Like yeah, kind of like that, except it's all flexible. Instead of having right. to have the hard fi- – I'm pointing like they can see me. Um, but, like, <laughs> instead of having the hard device on your it, – it would all be flexible, like the Disney okay. watch. The Disney oh. bands – not Disney watch, but the Disney the bands. magic bands? Are- yeah. Okay. Uh, they, yeah. They're all super flexible. Mm-hmm. So kind of like that, um, even to the point that it can be um, a clear patch on your skin. And that's what the students are introduced to. They get a 15-minute introduction to this technology. Mm-hmm via video. So I did not have to be an expert. The teacher does not have to be an expert. Mm-hmm. And they're told to think of a problem that that technology can solve in their worlds. Mm-hmm. And that was really fun because even the, the Sprint students, the younger students do that as well. And it's so insightful what these students see as problems. You know, it's, it's so easy as an adult to think the kids are just off in la-la land, mm-hmm. but they are watching everything that goes on around them. We had our 7th and 8th grade teams, one of them came up with, it was a patch to be able to locate, they were focusing on autistic kids, mm-hmm. um, nonverbal autistic kids children who um, they wouldn't be able to find them if they got lost or something like that. Right. And so it was a patch that would go physically on their body that would transmit different features, their heart rate. I and mean, there's a couple of other little biomarkers that they had come up with to be able to find the student. So they learn that technology and it gets them excited. And then they um, start coming up with what their product would look like. And at this point, we're not they're not building spaceships. But we also understand that maybe what they're designing doesn't exist And that's kind of fun because there's no box. And so the teachers are there to just guide and do what teachers do. But they're the ones that are leading the project to say, yeah, this is this is what I want to do. This is why I want to do it. And then being able to walk that whole logical process through, which is something that we're missing right now in general in the workforce is people's ability to solve problems. What we're going to challenge them on is what you're doing does it matter mm-hmm. you know and who cares about what you're doing because at the end of the day they have to design a product conceptualize a product that people want to buy and so that's right. the the back piece of it is after they go to Boeing, in this case, they went to either Calhoun or Drake, depending on um, which school went where. Mm-hmm. And they then did a business development model. And that was really fun because they had to count out, you know, what kind of materials they would use, how much they would cost, who would make them, would they partner with somebody They come up with that, and then they presented it. At the Space and Rocket Center? At the Space and Rocket Center, yes. Actually, they partnered with us on this, and we were so thankful because it ended up being the perfect location Mm -hmm. for this uh, final culmination. On this (laughs) last one, when they presented to the panel of judges, who were the panel of judges? So for our final pitch, we had representatives from several local industries and our community colleges, including the presidents from both Drake State and Calhoun Community College. Mm -hmm. We had representatives from Boeing. On the final panel, we had a representative from Toyota mm-hmm. and a representative from the DoD, a company called Mantec was here also. Mm-hmm. And um, their their role was to just kind of ask the, the students questions to make them think a little bit deeper. So it was really interesting to see them interact with the yeah. panelists. And these are adults that are leading their field. The big and, scary adults. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, and there's, a, there's a panel, if you can envision it, of 10 people wide. And these oh students are in this large room mm-hmm. at the Space and Rocket Center. And I would venture to say many of them had not ever had to do something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we literally threw them into it. And and i was so proud of how the students handled it and, and this is this seems to be the pitching itself seems to be sort of part of the experience that is. flex factor gives them it is um, the you you kind of the shark tank style that they're going to ask you questions you're not <laughs> mm-hmm. just giving a presentation right. you're giving it to strangers who are going to ask you questions mm-hmm. and we don't know what questions they're going to ask mm-hmm. you on top of all of that other stuff you have to come in and talk to strangers about a project that you've only had a couple of weeks exposure to. Right. Um, and 15 minutes introduction to the actual technology. Right. You right. Know. Good luck. <laughs> and they just do it. They don't have the mm-hmm. same boundaries that we would have as adults. Mm-hmm. They don't see the same problems. Mm-hmm. Everything is open. Everything's a possibility. They just go with it. I wonder what the impressions were from the panel, like when they heard these pitches. You know, we talked a little bit afterwards about it, and um, the panel was – awesome. They were totally engaged and excited about the students. You know, Boeing is looking and those companies are looking for more technicians to do these jobs. And so I I think the questions that the panelists asked probably told us more than, you know, even how they thought because they were genuinely listened to what the students had to say and that they were really impressed with how the students came along because, you know, a couple of the representatives from Boeing were with us the whole time. You know, they started it off with us as the pilot and they went through it. So they got to see where the students started and where the students finished. We don't want to put them in a box. We just want to expose them um, to those options out there and make sure that they know the pathways that are available to them. Because so many students decide at an early age that there is no pathway and we lose them once they get out of high school. We have to help them figure it out earlier. So
0: I I read about the Learn and Earn program Mm -hmm. and it also mentioned not just bridging the gap with Students, but also with people who are already in the field who
2: maybe want to change their career or maybe with veterans? And mm-hmm. The program has only been around, Flex Factor has only been around for a couple of years. So we're still, right. they're still figuring it out. And now we are still figuring it out because we, I see it, we see it, I think, as a, um, as a real way to link these opportunities and, and make sure people are aware of it instead of just saying there's a plant. They'd make things, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a real way. Our veterans are a very important part of this population. We hope to pilot this program later this year with mm-hmm. veterans. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of different types of student groups uh, in general, and in participant groups. Uh, anywhere there's a cohort of people who are a little lost, we mm-hmm. can figure it out with them. It's just kickstarting the these pathways and making sure that they that students, participants, whatever you want to call them, understand. The full range of opportunities in advanced manufacturing because so often it's it's kind of demonized on television, you know. Mm-hmm. It's oh, it's dark, dirty places, right. and most of most of these places are cleaner than my house. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I have horses, so you know it's a little different. But okay. but these plants are um, are very clean. These plants, manufacturing facilities, it, it, the whole verbiage has to change. But um, the jobs today are are really different, and the skills required to get into them are different. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I think we've got them. We've got the people. It's just getting them interested in it. I wonder what the roadmap is from now to integrate
0: Flex Factor into North Alabama schools and beyond.
2: Just in Alabama in general, you know, we are working to identify more industry partners Mm -hmm. who fit the advanced manufacturing model who are willing to let us in Mm -hmm. to tour their plant and, you know, hopefully even spend a couple of hours there. Um, I was truly impressed by the way the students reacted to having that attention from um, the the company representatives, whether they were engineers, HR, whatever, it's a lot to ask of a company. But I think it's necessary as we move forward to really, really open that door of, of the fact that there is a pathway there early enough so students can actually take advantage of things like dual enrollment in high school, right. um, all those different things that allow them to get into Manufacturing sooner, or whatever they end up deciding, while they're still in high school, while they're still a cohort, while they still have those resources and those teachers there to love on them and help them through it. That's that's really the goal. So expanding to new industries, uh, new companies who want to partner with this, and then also to expand it to other counties um, in the area. You know, the Huntsville labor shed is very large, and mm-hmm. so it's just trying to get out to the high schools that are in the uh, Calhoun and Drake State service areas. I would be remiss not to say that we're very thankful for Boeing for bringing this to the area because I would never have heard about it. Right. Their job is to develop this technology, and they're all the way out in California. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't want to wait 10 years and then say, oh, we've got to get people ready to use right, this because right. companies like Boeing and others need them today. So it's really about spurring interest. And there's a lot of things taking place in Alabama to encourage interest into these areas. So this is really just another layer of Mm -hmm. encouraging interest. Well, this is a very
0: unique opportunity, it sounds like, for the students here in North Alabama. Is there anything else that you would like to add about NextFlex or anything else that you'd like to talk about today?
2: It's just really all about the STEM-related majors, future careers in technology, advanced manufacturing, whatever that looks like. So overall, um, you know, we we had 61 students this year, Mm -hmm. and I see that number growing exponentially really quickly. When an educator comes to you as an industry with an idea, you know, I think it's important that we all sit down and try to figure out what makes sense for everybody uh, and, and what the end goal is. And I think we're fortunate to live where we live because everybody's very accepting of it.
0: I was going to ask also, is there
2: anything planned for the summer? For any sort of. Um... So I'll be working with NextFlex this summer, um, and a couple of my uh, partners with the community college system will be as well, just to try to make sure we have a plan in place to grow this out because we did actually have more interest from the education side than we a- anticipated. Mm-hmm. We will be working towards the Flex Factor uh, for Veterans uh, program, and maybe even, you know, there's a couple of other local groups that we're talking to. Uh, potentially to try to even access, you know, our homeschool populations. Um, There's a possibility even for our adult ed populations. Right now it's kind of bringing everybody together and saying, okay, what went well, what didn't go well, just making sure that when we move forward in the fall and the spring next year that we have a solid program and everybody understands their roles. Thanks to Flex Factor Program Manager and
0: Regional Director of Workforce and Economic Development, Dr. Courtney Taylor, Zolfet Suara, John Schmidt, and Alan Little with Listen Local Huntsville and Troy Public Radio's Carolyn Hutchison and retired Major General Walter Gavan. Be kind and rewind. You can listen to all these stories and interviews and explore our vast podcast archives over on our website, wlrh.org. Just look under the program's tab for the public radio hour. Tune in next week and every Thursday night at 7 to hear this show. That's right here on member-supported 89.3 Huntsville. I'm Katie Ganaway. Sayonara for now.